Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to today's edition of Listening In. My name is Francesca. You're tuned in to CKTZ Cortez Community Radio 89.5 on your FM dial or cortezradio.ca online. It is only mid-August, and already the leaves on the maples outside my window are starting to show their autumnal hues. And what autumn means to the BC literary community, readers and writers alike, is the Vancouver Writers' Festival in October. Over the course of the rest of the year, we're going to feature some writers participating in that event on this show. This year, of course, in our attempts to hamper the spread of COVID-19, the event, like so many other important cultural events, has had to reinvent itself online. I'm very curious as to how that's going to play out and what will endure from the online format when things return to our quote-unquote new normal. So, to highlight the event over the course of the next few months, as I say, I'm going to be reading from a selection of authors participating in that festival. Today, I'm going to read Wild Dogs by Helen Humphrey. Humphrey's newest book, due out this week, titled Rabbitfoot Bill and based on a true story, will be featured at the festival, but I'm going to read from one of her older books. Wild Dogs was published by W.W. Norton in 2006. In Wild Dogs, six strangers have lost their faithful, once obedient canine companions to a wild forest at the edge of town. Somebody in their lives, their boyfriend, their husband, their daughter, their parent, has abandoned the dog, released it. And the dogs have found their way to this forest. So every night, these six people gather with their loss at the edge of that forest in the hopes of getting their dogs back. So it essentially is a meditation on being wild and, presumably its opposite, belonging. The book is divided into headings which bear the names of each of the poor, beleaguered former dog owners. And we start off with the narrator, Alice. The wild dogs roam the summer fields just outside of town. Their eyes flash bright stars in the woods at night, and they weave like fire through the dry grass towards the edge of the city, looking for something to kill and eat. Love is like those wild dogs. If it hunts you down, it will not let you go. And what you can never know from the beginning is how hard or how long you'll love something. How even when it has gone, the love you felt will still chase you down, loping like dark flame through your blood. The wild dogs are real. They are out there beyond the safety of the streets and houses, beyond the lights of the city. And one of those wild dogs is mine. There are six of us who gather most evenings at the wood behind the fields on Cooper's farm. We arrive at twilight and stay well after dark. Sometimes we stand together, and sometimes we are strung out along the tree line, calling into the woods, our voices lifting as prayer to the soft ear of darkness. We are calling our dogs back. There are nights when we cry out and nothing happens. And then there are nights when the woods crackle with the running weight and the pack of the wild dogs bursts out in front of us and we surge forward, uttering the human names that used to belong to them. 
It is the strangest feeling to see my dog running towards me with no glimmer of recognition in her eyes. How can I still know her and she not know me at all? She runs out from the trees before me and then past me, running across the fields of Cooper's farm. And it is as if though I have lost not only her, but myself. Sometimes the dogs are so close that we can smell them. They smell warm and acrid, not unpleasant, but not familiar. They run so near that I can see how their fur has become matted and knotted with burrs. I can see who limps and who is getting thinner. But they don't return to us. We come out to the woods every evening and call to the dogs, and they never come back. And it is not about love, although we love the dogs fiercely. But the dogs didn't understand our love when they lived with us, and certainly they don't understand it now. Whatever they felt for us wasn't what we know of love. No, it's not about love. It's about belonging. Once we belonged with those dogs, belonged to them, and now that they've left us, we don't know who we are. Wild is a word I would have once given to my younger self. That child who ran fast through the woods or swam the river swollen with flood water. I can still feel the flex of that river, feel how fast and far it moved me along its length, so that when I clambered up the muddy bank on the other side, I was a good half mile from where I'd started. The river had taken me, and yet I had not relented once against its force. That was how I lived then. That was what I thought wild was, throwing myself totally into something, at something, letting it move me, but never quite surrendering to it. I grew into a more reckless person, had sex young, drank and took drugs, rode a motorcycle. I would have said that all that was being wild. The motorcycle was the best part of that, really. I rode it for years, 10 years, in fact, selling my latest bike only when I got the dog and realized the two things were incompatible. After I left school, I worked at a car wash in the center of this small city where I live. I used to ride the motorcycle to work as I rode it everywhere. I would get on the highway at a quarter to five in the morning, slip through the loosened knot of darkness into daylight. The road twisted beside the river all the way down into the city, twisted like the river. The dull orange highway lights went out one by one above me. There's a heightened feeling to riding a bike because it's such a vulnerable act. Any small mistake can kill you. So one must feel very alive to compensate, to balance out the danger and fear. I can recall that feeling easily, and I can remember the smells of early morning, the tang of the river beside the road, the hot steel of the cars that swept by me. I rode that motorcycle in all weather, through every daylight hour, onto the shoulder of winter. I rode with the rain nailing the visor of my helmet shut and with lightning pinning the ground on either side of me. I rode with rain gear on, dry and sweating inside the envelope of yellow plastic, and I rode through unexpected storms in my jeans and jacket, water pooling at my crotch and the dye from my gloves staining my hand black for weeks. To ride in cold is to feel the body slowly stiffen at all its hinges. It is to ride tucked down behind the small windshield 
with the left hand cupped above the heat rising from the engine cylinders. To ride in hot weather is to smell the bitter diesel of the tarmac, to feel the pock of bees exploding on your jacket and visor. What I remember best, the feel of the wind against my shoulders, how the resistance felt exactly like two hands pushing at me. When I was tired, I could lean into that wind and it would hold me upright in the saddle. How it felt to ride out in early morning and disturb the mist in the hollows. How much cooler it was to ride through the dip at the bottom of a hill. How it smelled like rain and felt damp and gentle on my skin. How the early morning landscape was like an x-ray of all the secret places where the water had touched down. There were pools of gauzy white in the dark green dawn. I felt them all on my skin, and this is what I thought it meant to be alive. Wild, I could say, about myself back then, and yet now I can see that it wasn't really true. To be wild is to live by instinct and not by imagination. To live wild is to have no story for it. I would still have said that I was wild, that night we went to the bar together to talk about the dogs. Then I could still recognize the feeling I thought of as wild. I would have called it back using that name. We sat downstairs by the open window. It was almost September and stormy outside. The rain showed the boughs on the street as black and the wind stirred the leaves into a kind of restless fury. I sat opposite you, our heads almost touching across the small table. We drank and talked about the dogs. I don't remember what we said, but I knew I was worried about my dog, Hawk, and how she'd survive the winter in those woods. The weather was already turning. Summer was stiffening along September's edge, hardening into the ambiguity of autumn. The bar was mostly empty. It was a weeknight, around supper time, and most people were happily elsewhere. When I went upstairs to use the bathroom, the entire upper floor was dark and empty. I started walking across the room from the staircase to the washrooms at the back, and my feet kicked through something covering the carpet. Leaves. The entire floor was blanketed in leaves. They must have blown in from the open window downstairs where we were sitting. They must have blown in and swirled up the staircase, fluttered to the carpet as though to the soft forest floor. I had not seen any of this happening, and it was then that I knew that I must love you. When I came back out of the bathroom, there you were, standing in the middle of the floor in ankle-deep leaves. We didn't say anything. I walked over to you and took your hands and leaned in to kiss you. I could smell the sharp damp of the leaves, and I could feel my heart riding up against my ribs, that vocabulary of nerves and feelings that it sometimes remembers how to find. How do we know anyone or anything? Did I know Hawk because I knew her habits? I had my dog for four years, from the time she was a seven-week-old puppy, and in all that time she slept sprawled out on the end of my bed. She was a big adult dog, shepherd collie mix, and I often had to sleep with my legs curled up to accommodate her bulk. I never minded doing this, although some of the people who shared my bed over those four years took issue with the dogs being there. It was not negotiable, I always said. Hawk was here first. She was allowed to stay. And then, several months before I lost her, Hawk changed her sleeping patterns. 
decided to remain downstairs on the couch instead of coming up to sleep with me. I have no idea what prompted this. There seemed to be no reason for this change in behavior. It was as if she'd grown weary of her habits and had felt the need to make something new of her life. Whatever the reason, I accepted the changes in the dog without protest, something I would never have done with a person. But I trusted that the dog knew what was right for herself better than I could. I trusted that the gulf between our natures resulted in her being the wiser creature, and I knew that her decision to alter her sleeping arrangements had nothing to do with me. I didn't need to take it personally. There were other changes Hawks had made in her life, other breaks in the recognizable pattern. She used to enjoy swimming, and then one day she wouldn't go near the water. She used to ride in the front seat of the car and then changed to sitting in the back, as though she was being chauffeured. These are seemingly unimportant things, really, but they can't be explained by my human logic, and so they continue to perplex me. If there's no apparent reason for something to change, then why does it? Is it a dog's nature to vary behavior when life becomes too comfortable? Is it ours? Because that's what really scares me that the stability and security I constantly tell myself I'm seeking, were they ever achieved, would be disrupted and destroyed by that same part of me that exists in Hawk, that same part that made her move from the comfortable perch on the end of my bed to the hard, lumpy downstairs couch. It scares me to think that I could give up easily all that I desire. I love the dog, but there's no need to mention that, no, not really. She has been my stability and my security through these last four years. I could say that instead. And what I can't believe is that she's gone from me. I can't believe I won't see her big furry head at the living room window when I come home from work or feel her lean against my leg when I stand at the sink in the evening washing dishes. I can't believe my life is now only moments without her. It was John who sent Hawk away. He'd lost his job months ago, and we'd been fighting ever since. He had never liked the dog. I can see that now, how he was jealous of the place Hawk occupied in my affections. Other people in town, other people he knew who had lost their jobs at the factory, had gotten rid of their dogs because they could no longer afford to feed them. That is what he did with my dog. That was his excuse. It took me three days to get him to divulge where he'd taken her. And by that time I drove out to the fields back of Cooper's farm, my dog was part of the pack that lived in the woods there, and she wouldn't come back to me. There had been a pack of wild dogs living in the woods behind Cooper's farm for a while now. Whether the dogs wandered there themselves or were dumped at the edge of the woods, no one knows. Now, though, I have learnt that if someone wants to get rid of a dog, they drive it out to the woods and leave it there. It's not the same as killing her, John had said. I could have done that. Others have done that. But I didn't. She just lives somewhere else now, not with us. There are six of us who wait every evening at the edge of the woods. There is Malcolm, a man in his 40s who lives with his mother in an old farmhouse not far from Cooper's farm. I live there because she had a stroke, he said defensively the first time we found out about his situation. She needed someone to look after her. I had to move back. Malcolm's dog is an apricot standard poodle named Sidney. He got away by accident. 
Malcolm had been out of town for two days, and the neighbor in charge of walking the dog had let him out unattended, instead of putting him on a leash and taking him out along the road. There is Lily, a tiny girl in her twenties, and I say girl because she's got something wrong with her, some level of retardation that keeps her young and guileless as a child. She has called her dog simply dog, and when we ask her the breed, she says again, dog. Her parents set dog free out here because they said Lily wasn't looking after her. But I was, she says, whenever she tells her story. I looked after that dog just fine. Jamie is 13, a scruffy kid with ripped jeans and a dirty t-shirt. His dog's name is Scout. Pitbull, he says before I ask him, stepfather, for this is how we tell our stories. Our name, the name of the dog, the breed, and who sent the dog away. Jamie rides his bike out to the woods every evening, drops it hard on the grass, and walks quickly up and down in front of the trees, calling his dog's name so sharp and fast it sounds like gunfire. Walter Penderton's dog is a Jack Russell Terrier named Georgie. It seems odd that so small a dog would fit into a pack of considerably larger dogs. But Walter has seen Georgie running near the middle of the pack, Nowhere near last, he says proudly. He is old, Walter Pendleton, and I guess Georgie is too, which makes it all the more miraculous that he has been accepted into the pack of wild dogs. This fact has cheered us into thinking that what lives in the woods and runs across the field at night is perhaps still closer to being dog than wolf. But it doesn't explain why the dogs don't come back to us even though we stand by the woods calling for them every night. There are two other people who meet every evening at the edge of the trees. There is me, and there is you. Your dog is wolf already. You got him last summer when you were living far north of here observing a wolf pack. He was a pup then, and his mother had been shot. I shouldn't have taken him, you say. I should have just let him die. As a wildlife biologist, a scientist, you're not supposed to get emotionally involved with your research. You called the wolf pup Lopez, and you brought him with you when you came to town this August to use the university library and write up your notes. Lopez had to be walked on a rope because he was unpredictable around people and other dogs. But you always felt sorry for him being tethered, and so one day you brought him out here behind the fields on Cooper's farm, and you let him run free. And that is exactly what he did. He ran into the woods and joined the pack of wild dogs. I don't know what happiness means. I think about it a lot because that is the name I have given to the short time I had with you. But I'm not sure it's the proper thing to call these moments. But what else can I say about them? The language that I have now is not adequate to the feelings that I had then. I remember one day in particular. I had come back to the cabin early, and as I drove down the long driveway, you were walking ahead of me. You were carrying scissors. I never asked why. And at first you didn't hear the sound of the car. You were walking easily down the driveway, flanked by tall meadow grasses, your back straight and your long arms bent at the elbows. You hardly ever had them fully extended in anything you did. And I tried to make you turn towards me with the sheer force of my feeling for you. 
but it didn't work. I stopped the car and sounded the horn, and then you looked back, turned around, and walked towards me. It is impossible to fully inhabit a moment again. That is part of the inherent sorrow of life. This can never be that. I can never really let you know how much I felt for you that August afternoon. I can just choose one small point to describe and hope that I can describe it well enough to make it real again. So I choose this. You are almost at the car. I roll down the window and in the space before you lean in and kiss me, the space before I look into your eyes and think for the thousandth time how yours is the right face, the perfect face, in that brief interval before we renew our connection, the scent of the hot summer afternoon tumbles through the car window. What is the smell? Dry, dusty heat and straw-like musk of the field grasses and overlaying everything, the scent of milkweed. It's a scent like lilac, but deeper, a descent, footfalls at dusk, the rise of memory. It's what a bruise would smell like, or the inside of a promise. It's shyness at the point when feeling enters conversation and the words stumble over one another. All I have now is this backward glance, I've lost your face framed by the car window, the exact look in your eyes, the things we said, how your skin felt under my fingertips. I've lost all that, but I can still hold on to that one moment when I rolled the window down and the summer spilled into the car and it smelt of us. I was working that summer pumping gas. It was a job I had done years before and there was a certain indignity in having to return to it now. But work was hard to find, and I was lucky to have landed anything at all. And really, I minded pumping gas less than a lot of other things I've done for money. At least I got to be alone in the cash booth, and I could read when business was slow. Sunny days, I generally had a pretty good time of it, but there was always twice as many cars to service on a rainy day. We were living on my pathetic wages from pumping gas. John had been let go when the furniture factory closed, and because he wouldn't demean himself by doing something as base as pumping gas, he hadn't been able to find any other work. Instead of being grateful that I was bringing money in for us to live on, John resented my working and constantly picked fights with me about the smallest, most insignificant things. I hadn't given him a phone message. I made too much noise in the mornings getting ready for work. He was critical of everything I did, everything I said, and it was easy to leave him after he sent my dog away. We had been together only a couple of years, and even in the first year, when he was employed and relatively happy, there were plenty of moments when I questioned my decision to be with him. So it was easy to leave him, as I've said, and even without the fact of his getting rid of Hawk, the leaving felt inevitable. Leaving John was not a mistake. What was a mistake was what I decided to do after I left him. The six of us gathered at the edge of the woods out back of Cooper's farm, connected with one another swiftly and strongly. Because we had suffered the same loss, we bonded with it an immediacy that I now realize was premature and foolish. If I were to do anything over, I would not have gone to live in the cabin on Malcolm's property and perhaps I would not have fallen in love with you. 
I left John in a hurry, in a fit of rage after I found out what he'd done and after I realized Hawk was not coming back. I threw some clothes and books into my car and slept for the next two nights in the parking lot of the gas station where I worked. The third evening I was standing with the others at the edge of the woods and you asked me why I looked so tired. I've been sleeping in my car, I said. I left my boyfriend. Malcolm, who was standing on the other side of me, was quiet for a moment, and then he said, There's a small cabin on my property that's not being used right now. You could have it for the rest of the summer if you wanted. I followed Malcolm home that evening. He lived on one of the county roads not far from Cooper's farm. The driveway was dirt, rutted, and sprouting a band of waist-high grass down the center. The grass made a pinging, percussive noise on the underside of my car as I drove over it. We went past the farmhouse, a dilapidated white building, and Malcolm stopped his car on the other side of a collapsing barn. Out front of the barn were rusted cars, an old freezer, and the remnants of two iron bedstands. A little way behind the barn, on the bank of a small stream, was an old log cabin. There was moss growing on the roof, and the screen door was hanging off one hinge. It hasn't been lived in for a while, said Malcolm apologetically. It was the original building on this property once. It's almost 200 years old. We stepped up onto the rotting front porch and he opened the cabin door. The interior was dark. There was a fireplace on the wall across from the door, a bed under the left window and a table under the right. The floor of the cabin was dusty and covered with bits of wood and what looked like chewed up pieces of toilet paper. You can use the stream for washing, said Malcolm, but you'll have to bring water in for drinking. I can lend you a camp stove. There's one in the barn somewhere. I had grown up in this town, but I didn't have any real friends left here. Most people I knew had moved away after finishing school or after the factory had closed down. My mother was dead and I was no longer in contact with my father. I knew the people I worked with and some of the people John had worked with who had stayed, but I didn't know anyone well enough to sleep on their couch for a while or to ask their opinion as to whether I should move into the empty cabin on Malcolm Dodd's property. I'm sure if I'd had had friends in town, they would have advised against this decision. Thank you, I said to Malcolm. I really appreciate this. I lay in that cabin with you. We were naked, lying on our sides after sex, facing each other. You ran your hand lightly from my shoulder, over my ribs, hip bone, and halfway down the outside of my leg, as far as you could reach. It is how I imagined you used to stroke your wolf dog, and when I looked at your face, I could see that you were watching yourself, watching me. Do you think they're happier without us, I asked. No, you said, I don't. I don't think it's about happiness at all. I leaned over and kissed you, and then I ran my finger over your lips, and you opened your mouth. I could feel the sharp serrated edges of your teeth and the soft inside of your lower lip. I thought of all those times I had been so miserable and how I would walk the dog barefoot in the early mornings in the park across from where I lived. The dog without a leash, plodding behind me through the soft grass. Every so often I would fish a biscuit from my pocket and reach down to slip it inside Hawk's mouth. She would take it so gently I could feel the rubbery curl of her lip and the ridge of the roof of her mouth, and this would console me, that I trusted the dog not to bite me, and she trusted me to put my hand in her mouth. 
When you and Hawk were both gone from my life, I missed you more. I knew you for such a short time, but you came into my life with the force to change it forever. After meeting fruitlessly for days at the edge of the woods, the six of us who have lost our dogs decide to actively memorialize them. We do this by taking the others on the walks we used to take the dogs. To show the others where I used to take Hawk in the early mornings, I have to return to the vicinity of the small house John and I rented. I can't bring myself to go within range because he might be home and we haven't talked since I left. So I start Hawk's walk in the park across the road from the house where I lived. But I'm nervous being here. Keep looking back at the small white bungalow with the bedsheets pinned across the front window in lieu of curtains and the chipped concrete steps with the wobbly wrought iron railing. Even after so short a time has passed, it doesn't look like a place I should ever have lived. You lived there with your boyfriend, you ask? It is on this walk that you start talking to me, start asking me questions. You ask a disarming number of questions, and I see now how this is a defensive position, how it saves you from having to answer anything someone might want to ask you. But at the time, I thought you were genuinely interested in me, and I was flattered and grateful because no one had taken such an interest in me before. And I wanted to know you too. I had so many things I wanted to ask you, but in the end, it all comes down to one question only. What is the worst thing that could have happened if you'd allowed me to love you? Yes, I say, leading everyone quickly through the park. I lived there with my boyfriend. For how long? Two years. And you don't miss him? Not yet, I say. Who I really miss at the moment is Hawk. I have done this walk so many times with her that I can feel her beside me, the way a river can feel the current hauling its watery rope towards the sea. If I put my hand down, I think, I could feel the rough of fur at the back of her neck. I move my hand and it brushes against the back of yours. I look at you. You're looking at me. This is the moment I could have stepped away from. At the end, it's easy to see what was the beginning and how that beginning could have been avoided. Losing you has been so painful because being with you was so joyful. I never expected to feel that connected to someone, and I never expected to have it taken away so swiftly and completely. And what I don't know how to do is to reconcile those two things. Step away, I would say now. But of course, I didn't. <laughs>